This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Well, it's time to say goodbye to the year 2017, which had some bad moments, including the largest wildfire ever during the month of December, traditionally one of our wettest months. Yet it is the apparently the largest wildfire in our history, a reflection, I think, of the fact that our climate is indeed changing. But you know what? We want to keep things kind of on the up and up at our year-end program here. And we're going to have a little bit of heaviness in our second segment, rather unavoidably, because we're going to speak, as promised, with Gary Tobbs about his book, The Case Against Sugar. That will air in our second segment today, and it's uh, 30 minutes of radio we think you should not miss. And I want to keep things positive, if possible, here at the end of the year. And one of the most positive things I bumped into in the past week or two is the program airing on Netflix titled Silicon Valley. We've taken it upon ourselves to reveal some of the foibles of Silicon Valley. This program, uh, in, in rather parallel fashion, documents some of the less-than-optimal aspects of, of this great tech machine that is Silicon Valley. And uh, one aspect of tech that I think we have to embrace is the ability now, these days, to binge-watch something. And it's pretty cool that you can discover a program that you like and realize that you know, you've, you've got four years' worth of shows you can now check out in sequence. We don't, we don't want to be totally down on tech. It does have some wonderful aspects. It, for example, offers you the ability to not let some of the problems of the old-fashioned ways raise their ugly head. And in this case, I'm referring to something that happened to me, to my surprise, a few days back when The Week magazine did not show up in the mailbox. Now, because The Week is such a comprehensive look at what's going on around the world, we, we tend to rely upon it for rather snappy, short summaries of the news. For that purpose, I think it can't be beat. But when it didn't show up a few days back, I thought, gee, I wonder if I let the subscription lapse. I thought, I don't think so. And in fact, I found a document that had the card torn off of it, saying, you know, your subscription is running out. You know, please send money. This was from May of 2017. So I was almost positive that I had sent them some money. In fact, I was pretty sure I'd done it several times in recent years. But imagine my surprise when I called up The Week magazine and asked, first off, I'm good on the subscription, aren't I? <laughs> to which the woman replied, oh, yes, oh, yes. And to which I then asked, well, what, what, what year does my subscription run out? To which she replied, 2029. And we actually both had to chuckle at that moment. I said, well, how many times have I renewed in recent years? She goes, well, let's see. You did it in 2015. You did it a couple times in 2016. Of course, you did it in 2017. So when they send you these cards that say your subscription's about to run out, they're apparently uh, not telling the truth. It's somebody in some marketing division that's trying to get you to send money. And if you go several hundred dollars ahead in your subscriptions, well, that's fine with them. Now, I realize in retrospect, the date of the expiration is right there on the label when it comes to you on a weekly basis, and I, I just didn't check it out, so I certainly bear some responsibility here. But how can it be that they send you a card on a regular basis saying your subscription's about to run out? I guess the lesson in this is that one should be skeptical and, and do some due diligence and, and check claims that are made on your wallet. 
We uh, still think it's a fine organization, along with the good people that produce New Scientist on a weekly basis, which, along with The Economist, are probably the three weekly magazines we tend to rely upon most to produce this program, although we do count on regular contributions from the likes of Vanity Fair, Mother Jones, Harper's, The New Yorkers, and uh, many others. Oh, like, like, like Rolling Stone. We shouldn't forget them. It's kind of a sad commentary that we rely upon Vanity Fair, Rolling Stone, and The New Yorker for some of our hardest-hitting political pieces, but that's just the country we live in, isn't it? Anyway, let's start out today's program by hitting one of our favorite segments of every program, which is the good, the bad, and the ugly. note that according to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for freedom of speech, with the news that Oregon officials refunded a $500 fine and admitted they violated the free speech rights of a resident who showed their red light cameras were poorly timed. Matt Gerolstrom, an engineer who was originally penalized by the state for unlicensed practice of engineering, quote-unquote, after he published his analysis of traffic light patterns to help his wife fight a traffic ticket. After a four-year legal battle, state officials admitted they were wrong to attempt to silence him. Frankly, we would have expected better from the state of Oregon. It was, on the other hand, a bad week for hard copy editing with the news that Pope Francis has suggested that the phrase lead us not into temptation, in the English version of the Lord's Prayer, might be better translated as, do not let us fall into temptation, so as to remove any suggestion that God might be tempting us on purpose. I'm no theologian, but I'm I'm not sure the Pope's got this one right. Anyway, when I've read the Bible, that Jehovah of the Old Testament seems like just the kind of guy that would tempt us to see what would happen. We hasten to add that that opinion, like all those heard on this program, does not necessarily reflect those of, well, anybody else but us. And it surely was an ugly week last week for self-incrimination with the news that a Long Island, New York woman who was due in court on marijuana charges apparently parked her car in the space reserved for the chief of police, where she was then found smoking marijuana and ticketed Again, said Chief of Police Bill Ricca, it was like Cheech and Chong, all the smoke coming out of that car. And we have to say, that is a wonderful image. Thank you, Chief Ricca. And it was probably a bad and ugly week last week for the so-called sport of soccer with the news that Brazil's worst soccer team has started winning games. And its fans are furious about it. The story is that Ibis Sports supporters, that's the name of the team, were proud of its reputation as the worst team in the world and were shook when the club broke its two-year losing streak by winning three straight matches. Evidently, fans stormed a bar where players were celebrating and demanded they stop scoring goals. Personally, I thought that not scoring goals was essential to the entire art, as it were, of soccer since it seems to happen on a very rare basis. 
But anyway, one Brazilian fan complained that Ibis was becoming just another winning team, adding, it's the coach's fault. We would note in the passing reference to sport, which we do occasionally delve into in this program, that apparently the opposite has happened in the San Francisco Bay Area with the rise of Jimmy Garoppolo as the new San Francisco 49ers coach. Garoppolo has now won four straight games in a team whose previous record had been 1-10. in And if you add the two times he previously started for the New England Patriots, he apparently has a role, has a 6-0 and record as a starting quarterback, which is unusual. I don't know whether Garoppolo is going to be the rebirth of Joe Montana, but a part of me hopes so. Oh, and the Oakland Traders, soon to become the Las Vegas Raiders, as they were once formerly the Los Angeles Raiders, have, on the other hand, apparently blown to make it into the playoff by losing a bunch of games. So I guess the Davis family is going to ship a losing team down to Las Vegas, Nevada. We wish we were more sympathetic, but we're not. Now, because it still is the holiday season, as we are between Christmas and the New Year's, I did want to take a little slight detour into the briefing section. Always excellent, or almost always excellent from the week, uh, with their discussion of the Christmas tree. The subheadline of the article was, For most Americans, a tinsel deck tree is a holiday essential, but why do we put decorated furs in our homes? According to the magazine, this started, as did many Christian traditions, with roots that go back to pagan times. Some northern European pagans believed that the sun was a god and that he went through a yearly period of ill health in winter. They put of evergreen boughs on the winter solstice around December 21st, the shortest day of the year, and evergreens reminded them of all the greenery that would grow again when the sun god regained his strength and spring arrived. Ancient Egyptians, I did not know this, followed a similar tradition, adorning their homes with green palm fronds to mark the return of Ra, a hawk-headed god who wore the sun as his blazing crown. Ancient Romans also used fir trees to decorate their temples during the Saturnalia, the winter festival in honor of Saturn, the god of agriculture, which I believe was also based on the solstice, the fact this is the shortest day of the year, which apparently is what got co-opted into the Christmas season. The Romans had this long tradition of a big party about this time of year, and when Christianity took over, they decided this would be a good time to celebrate the birth of Christ. Even though, according to the Bible, during the time of the Nativity, the shepherds were lying with their flocks in the fields, which they do in the warm weather. Nevertheless, the whole Christmas tree was an import from the northern parts of Europe, and apparently they got a big boost from the Christian theologian Martin Luther, who began his rebellion 500 years ago this year in 1517, when he officially posted his complaints about the Catholic Church on a cathedral door. But as the story goes, according to the week, when Martin Luther was walking near his home in Wittenberg, he glanced up and was awestruck supposedly by the thousands of stars twinkling through the branches. The wondrous sight supposedly reminded him of Jesus departing heaven for earth at Christmas, and Luther raced home to recreate the holy scene for his family, dragging a tree into their parlor and decorating its branches with lighted 
candles. Supposedly, other Germans started covering their own Christmas furs with gingerbread, gilded apples, and other trinkets. That's what really got it going. It, the trees came here to the United States, brought to Pennsylvania by German immigrants. And, of course, as the story goes, they may have even played a role in the Revolutionary War since, according to legend, George Washington was crossing the Delaware River on Christmas, December 25th in 1776, to take on Hessian mercenaries fighting for the British who were evidently busy decorating Christmas trees and getting drunk. Suffice it to say, it is noted they were in no state to fight the ensuing battle and lost. But supposedly Christmas trees didn't really take off in fashionable society until they were granted the royal seal of approval. In 1848, the Illustrated London News published a sketch of Queen Victoria's Christmas tree at Windsor Castle, which was a gift from her German consort, Prince Albert. The image got reprinted in Philadelphia's Godey's Ladies Book with the Queen's crown and Albert's mustache removed to make it look more American, and the East Coast ladies went wild for the heartwarming scene, and the Christmas tree became a staple of the American home. And now you know the rest of the story. We do have one stat of the day we will cite for today's program, which is the fact that 66% of Americans say that Donald Trump has done the most to divide this country. Well, technically, what they've said is that he's done more to divide than unite the country, according to the ABC News Washington Post poll. But, interestingly, his core support remains solid. And here's the stat we will end the year with. Evidently, 22% of Americans say they'd still approve of Trump, even if he did shoot somebody on Manhattan's Fifth Avenue. We will just say in a sentence or two that the Mueller probe allegedly is still continuing, with a lot of controversy going on around it, I, I just wonder what's really going on there. And we look forward to finding out what the deal is in 2018. A rather more whimsical item that involves Russia appeared in New Scientist, which I'm unable to resist talking about. Apparently over in Russia, the phrase British scientists cracks them up. Noted James Harkin in New Scientist, when Russians hear the phrase British scientists, they don't tend to think of Newton, Darwin, or Faraday, or Stephen Hawking, or Peter Higgs. Instead, they're much more likely to think of psychologist Richard Stevens of Keele University, who earlier this year showed that swearing can help reduce pain. Or Olil Lokoda, a behavioral ecologist at Queen Mary University in London, who evidently has taught bumblebees how to play football. Oh, correction, this is a British publication, and we're sure they're referring to soccer. A sport that even bumblebees apparently can play. But reportedly, the phrase British scientist is a name you'll regularly encounter if you search the Russian language parts of the internet. It is defined on the online encyclopedia in Russian as a synonym for researchers working on pseudoscientific projects that are bonkers, idiotic, and have absolutely no practical value. Well... In all fairness, that's not the British science we know, relying as we do every week on New Scientist, which features you know, a good number of items of British research, shall we say. But apparently over in Russia, their news outlets go, go nuts, <laughs> reporting things like, British scientists have found that fish have personalities, or British scientists have discovered the best time to make love, 
or that British scientists have calculated the IQ of cats, etc. And apparently Russians tell a genre of satirical jokes that begin, British scientists have discovered dot dot dot, they did give one example, British scientists have proven that birthdays are good for you. People who have the most live the longest. Or British scientists have invented a way to walk through walls. It's called a door. Now, I admit, these are not first-class knee slappers, but apparently it really bowls them over in Novosibirsk. Now, evidently, the Russians find this idea of dubious science hilarious. They're very much in the mode of the ignoble awards, but darn it. Even though Russia gets more than its share of nominations for the awards, they seldom win. Of course, there is a sinister undertone to the article, suggesting that uh, one reason that the Russian press may be wishing to have a field day with the line about British scientists might be in the wake of the former Russian agent Alexander Litvinenko being murdered in London by polonium being put into his tea. The implication is that the Russian government published the, this meme of British scientists to undermine them at a time when they were expected to find evidence linking Litvinenko's death to the Kremlin, which they did. But it appears that this whole idea of the Brit- British scientist meme really kind of got going in, in 2003, which was, in fact, three years before Litvinenko's death. So it's unclear that that had a role. I, I'm intrigued to note that in the city of Krasnoyarsk in Russia, there's a chain of coffee shops called British Scientists. The Russian rock band Media Virus wrote a hit song called British Scientists. And in short, this meme is now so popular that any discovery made in an obscure lab of a lesser British university, which barely makes a ripple in the UK press, can in fact make national headlines in Russia. And while the angle is usually humorous, there often are real interesting and sometimes important studies, just like the winners of the Ig Nobel Prizes, but now defined as science that makes you laugh, then makes you think. By the way, we would like to take the time to plug our interview with an Ig Nobel winner, the ophthalmologist Ivan Schwab, right here at UC Davis, whose paper analyzing why it is that woodpeckers don't get headaches did earn him an Ig Nobel. But, you know, that was a curious and whimsical piece, but Dr. Schwab has also written an excellent book on eyesight throughout the entire animal kingdom, and we did interview him about that at some great length. I think we filled up the entire hour talking to Dr. Schwab because, damn, it was interesting. Anyway, we refer you to our archives at radioparallax.com for both of those interesting chats. We can pretty much guarantee that in 2018 we're going to continue looking at the downside, the seamy underbelly of the tech industry. And we just make passing mention as we close this segment of the fact that social media sites themselves are admitting that there may be a problem out there. Sites such as Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram were designed to help people connect. As we all know, listening to the we're trying to make a world a better place propaganda coming out of Silicon Valley, but a University of Pittsburgh study has found that spending too much time on them could instead intensify feelings of isolation. Researchers surveyed 1,700 adults aged 19 to 32 and found that those who used social media for more than two hours a day were twice as likely to report high levels of loneliness than those who did so for less than 30 minutes a day. What is wrong with this picture? Anyway, the topic of the second half of our program today is going to be on diet, specifically sugar, but there's a lot of other things one might say uh, about food 
and diet because, well, uh, there's constant news stories about this. I I have to admit, I, I generally ignore them because they're usually so lame and so incomplete and so dubious. Since the end of the year, we're going to look back at food studies. We're going to throw out a few that, eh, I don't know, may or may not be on the money. By the way, these items will be taken out of the weeks. Some of the things they said were good for us, slash, and some of the things we were told to avoid section, along with some items from their food and drink portion. Uh, but they noted that diet fads may be doing more harm than good in the bid to clear up the confusion over what is and isn't healthy Researchers have examined 25 studies involving tens of thousands of participants. They found that many of the latest nutritional trends involve significant health risks. They noted that coconut oil, a current diet, dietary fad, is high in artery-clogging saturated fats. Juicing does concentrate sugars and makes it easier to consume too many calories. And many gluten-free foods are high in processed carbohydrates, which are also linked to a higher risk of of type 2 diabetes. Andrew Friedman, who led the research, says the ideal diet, (laughs) according to Dr. Friedman, is mostly plant-based, predominantly consisting of fruits, vegetables, and whole grains. Hold the thought on the whole grain until you're at the end of the show. And, of course, red meat is still in the crosshairs. It's been described as increasing the risk of death from eight major diseases. The National Cancer Institute studied 537,000 adults between 50 and 71 over a 16-year period to find that those who ate the most red meat had a 26% greater risk of dying from cancer, heart disease, stroke, diabetes, kidney disease, liver disease, or lung disease. They speculate that the heme iron in red meats and nitrates in cured meats trigger oxidative stress, which damages cells. Well, maybe. At this point, I'm willing to say I, I'm, 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 not, I'm not positive, but maybe. By the way, I never bought the idea that eggs were bad. You, the public, was told for decades that eggs had too much cholesterol, they were horrible, you shouldn't eat eggs, blah, 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 all these egg substitutes in your diet, blah, 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 blah. You can eat egg white omelets, blah, blah, blah. Well, it turns out it's all bunk. If you remember your high school biology, every cell membrane in every cell in your body is composed of phospholipids, which create the membrane, but have to be stiffened up. Your body makes tons of it because it needs it. Your body makes tons of it because it needs it. Your dietary cholesterol can go wrong. It can have a role in being artery clogging. This stuff should all be way more nailed down than it is, I just got to say, after 30 years in medicine. Anyway, things that are supposed to be good for us in our diet, and this one one stuns me. Apparently, somewhere along the way in the last year, activated charcoal has jumped from water purifiers into food and beverages. Uh, In this correspondent's opinion, this cannot possibly be a good idea. Purifiers into food and beverages. Uh, In this correspondent's opinion, this cannot possibly be a good idea. But evidently, pitch-colored burgers, buns, lattes, and ice cream have flooded Instagram feeds, and many fans are claiming health benefits. Doctors, that would include me, Do note that activated charcoal absorbs just about everything that's in the gut, including 
medications and nutrients. I, I'd say really honestly, folks, give the activated charcoal a miss. Now, somewhere when I wasn't looking, apparently cauliflower became an in-food. Cauliflower, quote-unquote, rice has become a staple in supermarket freezers. Cauliflower flour is the new star of gluten-free pizzas. I'm not going to even touch gluten today. I do want to thank Mr. McMillan for going out and obtaining some gluten for me last year, which I ate with relish. It is a protein from wheat that gives it its doughiness. The fact that, you know, wheat sticks together in a way that corn and rice do not. Most people do not have a problem with gluten that suspect that they do. And some people do. I don't want to totally, totally downplay this, but most folks who think they do, in fact, do not. That's all I want to say. And what I guess will count as our final item today, before we go to break, is where tech meets food. It's noted that in the pre-Instagram era, restaurants loved dark wood and dim Edison bulbs, but dark rooms don't photograph well. So, restaurateurs seeking that social media buzz are now creating spaces flooded with natural light and packed with unique touches. Apparently, tiki and tropical are hot, as are colorful mid-century furnishings. I assume they mean mid-20th century furnishings, modern styles, etc. They note that for Madeline Marco's Media Noche in San Francisco, restaurant named Media Noche, designer um, Hannah Collins chose dramatic pink and green pattern tiles for the floor and banana print wallpaper for the bathroom. Both features now inspire customers, some from as far away as Japan, to spend up to 10 minutes snapping photos before actually ordering the food. Evidently, Madeline Marco admitted to TheVerge.com that it's really just insane. And anyway, please, if you're friends with me on Facebook, I really don't need to see what your breakfast burrito looked like. I promise I'll never do that to you. Can you please do me the favor? All right, let us take a break and come back and air our conversation with Gary Taubes. Regarding his book, The Case Against Sugar, The Atlantic said, Taubes builds his case through lawyerly layering of rich detail, extraordinary and refreshing. One of our staples, The Economist, said about The Case Against Sugar, compelling, perhaps at long last, sugar is getting its just desserts. At any rate, you're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Don't go away. (laughs) 